because my sin is atoned for, and so therefore I can go out and live however I want to live, and it's all covered by Jesus, and so I can do whatever I want. That's called license. And what Paul is saying in this second half, this practical saying, he's saying no to legalism. He's already said that basically in the first half. And now he's saying no to this thing called license. The uh, understanding of the gospel is not going to give you a license to go out and sin and live however you want. An understanding of the gospel is going to draw you into obedience to Christ, as Craig was talking about, living in response to this. And so what we are trying to walk through here that we transitioned to chapter 4, we finished last week, and now we get into chapter 5, is Paul rattles off these 35 imperatives, these 35 commands. And last week we talked about how a, a life that's saved by grace is going to be a life lived by grace. And, God, and Paul gives us these, these, these commands, these, these understanding that we don't have in our new man to live according to the grace that God has given us. If you remember last week, he says, no longer lie, but speak the truth. No longer steal, but share. No longer tear people down in your speech, but now build people up. Okay, that's an example, as he wraps up at the end of chapter 4, of what God has done for us. God didn't lie to us and tell us that everything was A-OK and then we spend eternity in hell. He told us the truth that through Jesus we can have a relationship with God. He didn't steal from us like the enemy does, but he has come to give us life and give it abundantly. God didn't come and tear us down. He literally tore his son down on our stead so that we could be built up in him. And so the example is the very grace of God for us to go and live out ourselves in response to what he has done for us. And so we're trying to wrap our mind around why are there all these commandments? Because these commandments are not do these things and don't do these things in order to get God's love because his love is established. But these commands are given so that we can, be, so we can understand how to live in response to God's grace and God's mercy. And so Paul just continues on into chapter 5 and all throughout chapter, chapter 5 with a bunch of these new commands. And so we're going to walk through them. And we're going to try to understand how to live in response to this grace. But before he goes into these different commands, he gives us this, these two verses that are so rich that we wouldn't have time in a year of Sundays to dig deep enough through them. And I'm going to try to cover it in about 10 minutes. So give me some grace uh, this morning. But he says here, moving on into chapter 4, if you're new here, I mean chapter 5, if you're new, we read a little bit, we talk a little bit, we read a little bit, we talk a little bit, and then we try to give a single point of application that we try to chew on throughout the week. We talk about that single point of application in our community groups, etc., throughout the week. So here's what Paul says, therefore, because of these, what God has done for us, because of this new life, remember back in chapter 4 last week, we, the old man was taken off, a new man was, has been put on. Therefore, because you have this new man that's made in the likeness of God himself, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. But children naturally imitate their parents. I think they love doing it. All right? Now, this is both joyful as a parent, but it can be also painful as a parent. Uh, our daughter, and I know I talk about our daughter a lot because, I mean, she's the center of our universe a lot of times. But she, uh, there's some joyful things. Um, when we sit down for, for a meal, she's in her high chair. I say, let's pray. And she reaches out like this to take her hands. It is the cutest thing in the world. It really is. I mean, she's 17 months. Who does that at 17 months? She's a brainchild. Um, <laughs> other, 
Other times, uh, she'll take a, a, one of our cell phones or her baby monitor or anything that's about that size, and she'll put it up to her ear, and she'll say, hello. And she'll just start giggling. Like she's talking to somebody through like her shoe, if she's holding her shoe up to her ear. She mimics it. She sees me do that. She sees April do that. She also does things um, like uh, um, uh, picking up the remote control, having no idea what the buttons are or what they do, pointing it at the television and pushing all the buttons. And when something does happen, she turns and stares at me with this big grin. Like, look what I just did. I don't know what it was, but it was pretty cool. Something happened. Kids love mimicking their parents. That's a joyful thing, but it's also a painful thing at times. Um, Gwen has learned the word no. We tried our best to not use the word no, like words like stop or, uh, or no ma'am, but all she picked up on was no. And like she will just bark this no out, and you're just like, all right, we tried, but there it is. Uh, so that's a, a painful thing because it's, it's very ugly. It shows the ugly side of our human uh, nature. Uh, but there's, there's dangerous uh, things. She, she'll take a, 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 a car charger, or not a car charger, a, a cell phone charger or a computer charger and walk over to the wall and try to plug it in if there's not a thing in the wall. That's very dangerous because she sees me and mom, you know, plug in our computers. So she mimics. And as a matter of fact, this word uh, imitators, that's in the, the Greek word, we get the word mimic from this Greek word. Children naturally mimic, imitate their parents. It's a natural thing to do. And what Paul has taught us in chapter one is that we are now what type of children of God? adopted sons and daughters of God. He is telling us right here that it is, uh, at the, in chapter 4, he also said that at the moment of salvation, the old perishable self was taking off, it was crucified with Christ, and we are given a new imperishable self that is created out of the likeness of God Himself with true holiness and true blamelessness, true righteousness. And so Paul is telling us as children of God, do what comes natural. If God is our Father, then we should mimic, imitate our Father who is in heaven. If He is in fact our Father. But He says we are beloved children. I wonder, do we really believe that? I think we believe we're children of God. We have to understand that in order to understand the Gospel and be saved. That we are sons and daughters of His. But do you really believe that you are beloved by God? Maybe you believe that you're a child of God, but, but it might not click that you are actually a beloved child of God. You believe that He loves you and that He has affection for you, but you struggle with the reality that every ounce of God's unconditional love is aimed at you whom He has drawn to Himself through salvation. I mean, can you, can I really be beloved by God, at least two times in Jesus' three and a half years of ministry on earth, God the Father pulls back the curtain of heaven and He declares that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Is it possible for the God the Father to look at you and me with the same affection, the same approval, the same pleasure that He looks at with His own Son? Are we really beloved children? I mean, it makes sense to me, it makes sense to all of us probably, for Him to look at Christ as beloved. Because this is his, his only begotten Son. Christ was sinless. Christ was perfect. It makes perfect sense for us for God to pronounce to the entire world that this is my Son in whom I love, that I, He is my beloved Son. That makes sense to us. But what about when He now through Jesus declares you 
me be loved? We think about this. How can I be beloved by God? I'm nothing like Christ. I have nothing worthy of God loving. I'm a wretched, sinful man, woman. Like we've talked about this quote by J.D. Greer. He says, there's more hope for a tissue paper on the surface of the sun than me in the presence of a holy God. Like, How could I be beloved? And I think it's something that we all struggle with in a certain one way, shape, form, or a fashion, or another. And this is when the very grace of God, the mercy of God, and the love of God enters the scene. You see, grace is defined as being given something that you don't deserve. And you are absolutely right in the fact that you don't deserve the love of God. If you thought you did deserve it, I hate to burst your bubble this morning. Mercy is defined as being withheld from something, some sort of punishment that you do deserve. And God's love is unconditional. It's unchanging. His love is unfailing. It's unfathomable. It's unending. It's unwarranted. And God's love is unlimited. There is nothing within us that is worthy of God's affection. There's nothing in us that's worthy of His attention, His appeal. Absolutely nothing. In fact, Isaiah says that the highest level of righteousness we can create in ourselves is nothing more than an old, filthy, nasty, used, rotten, soured minstrel rag. But God, being rich in His grace, being rich in His mercy, being rich in this love of His, He showers this mercy on you who believe by withholding from you the punishment that is due you because of your sin. And He gives you grace by giving you a new self, a new life, a new father, a new family a new inheritance in Christ. And He endlessly pours out His loving affection for you, for me. All of this, as Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners. In this great exchange where God takes off the old corruptible self and puts on a new, corruptible self, a new incorruptible self that's, nature, that's fashioned after God Himself, in this exchange, this new incorruptible nature is the very life and righteousness and holiness that is found in Jesus Himself. It is perfect holiness, perfect blamelessness, perfect righteousness. You are covered with Christ. Colossians 3.3 says that our, we have died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. So here's the picture. Here's what Paul is saying. That when God looks at you, you who believe, you who are children of His, you have been made alive by God's grace. You've been covered with Christ's righteousness. You've been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. When God looks at you, He sees not your sin. He sees not your filth, not your stain, not your putrid rags of stench. But when God looks at you, He sees His beloved Son, Jesus. How can God declare you and treat you as beloved? Because you are covered in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. So, am I a beloved child of God? Yes. If you are a member of His family to start with. There is not a child of God who is more beloved or less beloved than the other. We who are in Christ are a new creation. And we are covered with this righteousness of Christ. 
So to deny this reality is really in essence to deny the reality of our salvation. The reality of our salvation is that God has covered us with this righteousness of Christ. But to embrace this reality, to embrace the fact that I'm a beloved child of God. I might have disappointed my parents. I might have disappointed my spouse. I might have disappointed my children. But I am beloved by God Almighty because He has covered me with His grace, with His mercy, with the righteousness of Christ. And this, Paul says, I mean, John says in 1 John 4.16 that God is love. So if he wants us to mimic, to imitate our Father as this beloved children, we are to mimic, to imitate his love. In fact, in verse 2, Paul even says, and walk in love. This is the love that's been shown to us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And Paul says, walk in this love. I want you to walk imitating the love of God. Paul's very concerned about our walk. In just this, verse, this book alone, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about the unbelievers who walk uh, in death because of their uh, sin and trespasses. In Ephesians 2.10, he says that we are to walk in the reality of the purpose that God has saved us for. In Ephesians 4.1, he begs us, to the believers, to walk in the manner worthy of our calling. In Ephesians 4.17, he teaches us, uh, to no longer walk in the futility and, and the ignorance and the callousness of unbelievers, which we talked about last week. And here he's begging us, he's saying, walk in the love that we have been shown by the Heavenly Father. Because we are now beloved by Him. He sees us as His own, as righteous as His own Son. He's calling on us to imitate our loving Father who displayed His love for us. You know, God didn't just talk about His love for us. He actually showed His love for us. You know, I've spent a lot of time with teenagers as being a youth pastor in the past, and this example after example after example of of how a young girl gave up her her purity, her her virginity to a boy who just told told her in the backseat of a car that, that he loved her and that he would be with her forever. And then as soon as he got what he wanted, he was out the door. And that's not the love of God. The love of God is unfathomable. It is unchanging, it is unconditional, and it is something that we could never even imagine with our human finite minds. So he goes on to say, walk in this love. And he gives an example of this love that God has shown for us. He says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he says, copy God, be imitators of God, children Imitate their fathers. This is natural. You've been given a new self. Now copy your new father because you are a beloved child and walk in this love. And he gives us this example of this, of Christ's love, of, of God's great love. He, that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. God's love is a giving love. God never takes, God never waits for us to love him before we, he first loves us. He always initiates. Think about what happened to Jesus. It says, Christ loved us. Think about what happened to Jesus the night of his arrest. He was in the upper room or the room with his disciples having the Lord's Supper, which we're about to partake here in a minute. As he was in this room with the disciples, um, the weight of his pending crucifixion was certainly starting to bear down on him. The weight of one of the men in his group of 12 that he had ministered with, prayed with, served, loved for some three years was about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. 
the weight of this reality bearing down on him. And while this weight, while this meal is taking place, the chitter-chatter amongst the twelve is who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. About which of them is going to have the seat at the right hand of Jesus in heaven. Talk about disappointment. Talk about a reason to just be angry and to storm out the room and say, you guys don't get it. I'm out of here. What was Jesus' response in that moment? The Creator Jesus who spoke this universe into existence wrapped a towel around His waist. He gets down on His knees on the dirt that He spoke into creation. This Creator God who dreamed up this idea of two hydrogens and one uh, uh, oxygen coming together (laughs) to form water. This God who, who, who created this reality now is holding a bowl of His created water to wash off the filth of the feet of the disciples he even created. You talk about an example to follow. You talk about a type of love that's foreign to this world. You talk about an opportunity to show to others the grace that has been extended to us. And that ought to be what we mimic. This love of Christ that's been shown to us. But it wasn't just shown to us. In, in, in tangible, amazing ways. It, Christ also gave Himself for us. Christ's death on the cross was both a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. You see, a fragrant offering, this comes from some stuff in the Old Testament that we could talk more about in community group, but this is the idea that Jesus Himself was a worthy sacrifice. He, was, he pleased God because He was perfect and righteous. Jesus' death was only as sufficient as Jesus Himself was worthy. Jesus was able to take away our sin because He did not have any of His own sin. His body was broken. His blood was shed. It was a spotless body. A perfect blood. Had Jesus ever sinned before, then His death would not have been a fragrant offering to God. He would not have been able to take our sin upon it. It would have been like me dying for you. That's not going to get you anywhere because I have my own sin that needs to be atoned for. Why do you think the first thing that the devil did, the very first thing he did after Jesus began his earthly ministry was to try to tempt Jesus to sin? Because the devil knew that if I could get him to mess up, then all the coming sacrifice that he is planning in redeeming the world won't be able to take place. And so the devil tried to tempt Jesus to sin. He knew that if he could stop, could get Jesus to sin, there would be no pleasing, fragrant offering to God. So because Jesus was worthy, his death was a fragrant offering to God. But it wasn't just an offering, a pleasing, perfect uh, sacrifice. It was also what Paul says, a specific sacrifice to God. This is the payment that was made. This is the placement of all of our sins on Jesus. Because Jesus was this acceptable substitution for our sins, because He was sinless, God then placed all of our sin on Jesus. The Bible says that He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Think about, all. this is, This is the gospel we've rattled off our tongue our entire life, that Jesus took all of our sin. But think about your sin. Every lie was placed on Jesus that you ever spoke. Every filthy thought, every pornographic lust, 
every hateful thought, every act of rage, every cheat on your wife, every evil word from your mouth, every law you ever broke, every selfish act, every double entendre, every selfish innuendo, every sexual innuendo, every foul word, every neglect of your family, every jealous thought, every covetous action, every arrogant and prideful attitude, every selfish, pitiful attitude, every sin, every sin of yours was placed on Jesus. But not just yours. Look to the person to the right, to the left. Their sin was fully placed on Jesus. He was our sacrifice. Not just an offering, pleasing, but He was the payment for our sin. And when we think about this reality, this moment, of what, as I said before, that Jesus did in an afternoon on the cross what it would have taken us an eternity in hell to have accomplished. And that is the payment for our sin. In this moment of Jesus embodying your sin, for the very first time in all of eternity, God the Father turned His back on God the Son. And God the Son cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting David from the Old Testament. Jesus knew why he had forsaken him. Do you know why? It's because of you. Because of me. Because our sin was placed on the very back of Jesus where his flesh became our sin. The sin that was so serious that it must be paid for in order for us to be reconciled to God. And God, as we sang with Craig a second ago, saw fit to pour out His wrath and judgment on His own Son so that His wrath and judgment wouldn't have to be poured out on those who believe. Listen, God did not do this because you and I are awesome. God did this because He is awesome. God's purpose, God's focus is for His glory and His fame to be spread across the entire cosmos, the entire universe. And He wasn't going to let anything, even your rebellion, stand in the way of that. Now, that's an awesome God who paid the penalty for your sin through His own Son, who looked on Him so that He could pardon us. This is the sacrifice, the offering that Jesus has done. This is what we must understand was done on the cross. I'm going to focus on that word done. D-O-N-E. Or if you're from the deep south, D-U-N. Either way, it doesn't matter. Done. The done of the cross. The wrath of God was swallowed up by Jesus paying your price by settling the debt of those who believe in Jesus. This is what Jesus has done for you. In a conversation just a year or so prior, Jesus had with a guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up so that those who would believe would have eternal life. His payment had to be made, lifted up on the cross, so that there would be an opportunity for those who believe to have life with God. In a moment, as I've been alluding to, we're going to have what we call the Lord's Supper, where we remember the broken body. We remember the blood that was shed for us in our stead. But we must remember what was done at the cross. Paid in full. Not paid in part. Not paid in half. Not a down payment now and then you behave good and then you get the rest. The done of the cross. D-O-N-E. 
But now Paul transitions into some do's and don'ts. Okay? Why does he now have do's and don'ts when he just talked about the done of the cross? And here's our journey marker for the day. And we're going to go ahead and put this up if you're new. Like, what's a journey marker? Well, in this journey of life, in this journey through Ephesians, we're just we're, we're highlighting some major things to understand as we walk through this book. Here's our journey marker today. Write it down, think through this, uh, contemplate on it. But you and I must read the do's and don'ts of Scripture in light of the done of the cross. Okay? We must read, we must apply the do's and don'ts of Scripture in light of the done of the cross. You see, if we do it any other way, then we turn into legalism or we turn into license to sin. And a proper understanding of what was done on the cross is going to drive us to faithful obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, to be imitators of our Father in heaven. Let's go back into the verse. So let's, we're going to rattle through these do's and don'ts, not because they're not important, but because we have to first focus on the done of the cross. So going into chapter of verse 3, he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness, must not even be named among you, because as is proper amongst the saints. Saints are children of God. And what Paul is saying is that these things, if you're imitating God, these are not going to be in your life. Because God is not sexually immoral. God is not impure. God is not, co is not covetous. So as a response to this grace that He has given us, we are to walk as imitators of God, not imitators of this flesh. You see, we have been set free from this. Jesus has paid the penalty. It is not fitting, it's not proper amongst children of God, saints, to walk in the manner that is unworthy of God Himself. Now, do we, do we mess up? Do we fail? We do fail. And that failure is covered by the grace of God. But Paul is saying, if you are truly children of God, then you're going to imitate God, imitating His love. What's the opposite of love? Sexual immorality, isn't it? If I have an un, un, a compromising love for my wife, the last thing I'm going to do is run around with somebody and be sexually immoral. He's saying copy, imitate the love of God, and these things won't be a part of your life. Go down to the next verse. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. That's not the result of mimicking God, of imitating God. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. You see, Jesus has paid for this sin. Don't pick it back up. Live in this new life that you can now live as children of God and live in thanksgiving. What could we possibly be thankful for? I think we just went through a bunch of it just a second ago. But Paul even clarifies. He says, for, and whenever you see a for, that's an explanation of something that was just spoken. He says, be thankful. Be sure of this. Be thankful. He says, for, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, everyone who is impure, everyone who is, covet, uh, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. No one who lives in this lifestyle who is these things, no one whose sin still remains on them will have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Those who are not believers, whose sin is not atoned for, those who are still spiritually dead, their sin remains on them, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the reality of hell. 
Those, however, who have been made alive by God are called to repent from their sin and to believe in Jesus. Now, no one, and I hope I say this very clearly, no one is saved by their repentance. But they are saved, as Paul just said in chapter 2, we're saved by the grace of God, not of works. But repentance, that is turning away from our sin, repentance and belief is a result of our salvation. It's a result of the work of God making alive the dead that was there and making us alive in Christ. As we realize the gift that God has given us in our salvation, we now begin to walk in obedience, repenting from our sin. The mark of a saved person, of a child of God, is to imitate their new father who is God. And that as we imitate our father in heaven, we will grow to hate the sin that God hates, mimicking God himself. And then he wraps up this section in verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with their empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not even be partakers, partners with them. And Paul's words here have been proven true, that there are men and women who try to deceive us deceive the truth of the gospel with empty words. Many people have tried to alter the truth of the gospel with empty words saying that Jesus isn't the only way. Many have tried to alter the truth of the gospel that saying that anyone who sins after their salvation then loses their salvation. Many have tried to alter the truth of the gospel as saying that now that Jesus has paid for our sin, we can go and sin all we want because it's paid for. And these are corruptions of the reality of the gospel. If God has given us a new self, a new man, and we are now adopted children of God, there is going to be a desire within us to mimic, to imitate the Father, our new Father who is in heaven. Just like Gwen mimics me, just like your kids mimic you, a child mimics their father. And so Paul is crying out, be imitators of God. Live up to the reality of who you are in Christ. Paul clearly states that this sin is, is serious. It's so serious that if our sin remains on us, then God's wrath remains on us. But hear me, if God is working even now in your heart, is He drawing you this morning to Him? Is He stirring your dead heart into faith, into life this morning? That you can try to work all the do's and don'ts of Scripture. You can say, well, I'm not sexual immoral. I don't need Jesus, but I'm not impure. I don't covet other things. You can try to work all the do's and don'ts of Scripture that you can get your hands on. But until you come to understand the work that was done for you on the cross, there will not be peace between you and God. And I beg of you to respond to God's stirring in your heart with repentance, with faith. And maybe you've already been made a believer by God's grace, but yet you struggle with the idea that you are truly beloved by God. Man, hear me. However much affection that God shows Jesus, that's the same love and affection that He shows you because you are hidden in Christ Himself. And what a good God we serve. What a God worth imitating. And as we understand the depth of that grace, the depth of that gospel, that good news, now would we not want to imitate the love of God? The do's and don'ts of Scripture must be understood in light of the done of the cross. 
Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. I want to lead us in a time of reflection and of response. We're going to have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, to remember the done of the cross, that all your sin for you who believe was placed on Jesus. Before we do that, I just want to ask, do you believe? Have you come to the point where you have surrendered your life to the call of God for salvation on your heart? Is He stirring your heart even now? What's going to happen is I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and Craig's going to come up and he's just going to lead and get to our plan. When he starts praying, playing, I'm going to invite everyone to come and take the Lord's Supper for those who desire. You just come and pinch off a piece of the loaf and you get a thing of the juice and you go back to your seat. You can find a corner in the room and you can pray and just give thanks to God for what He has done on the cross. Praying to give you strength to imitate Him. No longer the pattern of this world. And I'm just going to be standing over here on the side. If you want to come and talk to me about your faith, talk to me about your relationship with God, talk to me about whatever it is, I'm going to invite you to come and to talk. It might be a little awkward, it might be a little weird, you might have never done something like that before, but I'm going to beg of you to respond to the Gospel if God is working in your life.